Good morning, church. As, as David just said, my name is Seth Orr. I work with Campus Outreach at USC. Go Gamecocks. I'm excited to be here. I do feel the weight of opening God's word before his people and preaching it. It is no small thing. I have a deep desire to handle this word rightly. I feel very needy to the Lord. So if you would, please pray with me before we jump in, and then we'll get started. Father, I need you. We need you. I simply this morning that you would be glorified, that truth would be proclaimed, and that we would be shaped by that truth to look more like you. I ask this in your name. We need you. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 11 and 12 says this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Location, location, location. Many of you are probably familiar with the real estate mantra. Uh, My wife, Lauren, and I became very familiar with it a couple years into our marriage on our first ever house hunt. Uh, Now our budget was very limited, so therefore so were our options. And we were very excited, therefore, when we stumbled upon what we thought was that elusive, perfect property that fit both our budget and our desires, but we quickly found out why. Because in the front yard, the view was of the backside of a Walmart supercenter a couple hundred feet away, and in the backyard was... (laughs) was a power transformer station sending countless power lines right over the top of our would-be house. Uh, we took a hard pass. We, uh, we didn't get the house, but we did get a little insight uh, into the reality that location really does matter. In our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews invites us to consider not simply how Jesus died or why he died, but where he died and the implications therein. So we're going to do this via three main points. Uh, First one being looking to Jesus, second being going to Jesus, and third, living through Jesus. I'm going to cover the first point, and Matt's going to bring us home with the final two. My goal in the first point is to answer two main questions. Where did Jesus go for us, and what did he accomplish there? So when thinking about looking to Jesus, where is it that we see him in this text? Where did he go for us? It tells us plainly he suffered outside the gate. Now, to us modern readers, this seemingly minor detail, we might pass over it rather quickly, but to the original audience, a first century believer who familiar with Jewish customs and traditions, this minor detail would pack a major punch. The writer of Hebrews is attempting to communicate something to them and to us today a truth that is saturated with significance and brimming with implications, something about what it means to follow Jesus and be in him. So if we're gonna see this significance, a good first step is to familiarize ourselves with the old sacrificial system to which verse 11 alludes. So where do we go for help to understand such things as this, but to that wonderfully strange book of Leviticus? The home of inspirational quotes such as don't trim your beard, don't eat animals with split hooves, and don't wear clothes made of two different kinds of fabric. I think I messed up at least a couple of those this morning. But uh, though we might not find these old ritual law verses quoted in pretty colors in many social media posts, it is very helpful for us this morning in understanding sin offerings and what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. It's also a great example of the Old Testament providing depth and beauty to the new. 
This past week, Lauren and I stumbled upon a a beautiful hand-painted canvas of the Gervais Street Bridge in a thrift shop in town. Uh, It's now sitting in our living room. Uh, But when it was in the thrift shop, you know, thrift shops are not necessarily known for their aesthetics, right? And so set amongst the VHS players and old coffee mugs, uh, the beauty was suppressed. But in our living room, against the black stone fireplace amongst candles and decorations, the colors really burst off of the painting and invite the onlooker to stop and marvel. In a similar way, the Old Testament is like the backdrop upon which the life, death, and resurrection of Christ shines all the brighter. And one of my main hopes this morning is that we would stop and marvel. With that in mind, let's turn to Leviticus 4, verses 1 through 12. Divine Leviticus, if anyone needs direction, just go to where we've been going, the very beginning, Genesis, and it's two books to the right, two books later. Now, this is a longer passage. We're simply going to highlight just a few things here. Um, the Israelites were God's people, right? God demanded holiness from his people as he is holy. And so, when you have a sinner, like you have in verse 2 and 3, you have a problem, Sin and holiness don't mix. The just thing would be for the sinner to be cut off and destroyed. But God in his mercy sets up a system of substitution. Verse three. How it works is an unblemished bull would be taken from the herd and trade places with the blemished sinner. The bull would symbolically take on the dirtiness of the sinner, be destroyed in the sinner's place as a sacrifice, and the sinner would walk away ritually clean. The bull is slain before the presence of God in the tabernacle, then it is dragged along with its dung, we're told, outside the gate and burned. That's in verse 12. This was to symbolize the sin being purged from God's presence and from his people on the back of a sacrifice and disposed of in its natural environment, a place of death and decay. And this is exactly how the Israelites viewed life outside the camp. Throughout Leviticus and the entire Old Testament, right up into the time of Christ, outside the camp was where no one wanted to be. It was a place for criminals, the unholy, the unfaithful, the unclean. No one aspired to be there. Great lengths were taken to avoid ending up there. Trash was burned there. Lepers were cut off there. Criminals were executed there. To be there was to be dirty, detestable, dishonorable, and undesirable. And yet here we look and find our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The humility of Christ is astounding, is it not? Would it not be enough that he who fashioned human flesh from dust would wrap himself in it and dwell among us? Would it not be enough that the author of life would die and yet to die in such a place? Where is it that we see Jesus going for us in this passage? We see the holy of holies willingly going to and suffering in the unholiest and unlikeliest of places. But why? What did he accomplish there? Well, we're back in Hebrews 13 now. Sorry to make you jump everywhere. But back in Hebrews 13, the text tells us in the latter part of verse 12 that he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. Now, sometimes a good practice to understand what a text is saying is to think about what it could say, but doesn't. He could have said that he suffered outside the gate to save the people, but he doesn't. He could have said that he suffered outside the gate to justify the people, 
but he doesn't. He says sanctify, and I think there's a reason. The Greek word here is hagiazo. This word is sometimes translated to make holy or to consecrate. The idea is to be clean, set apart, distinct like God is. The word would certainly ring a bell in the ears of the original audience because it is this word that fueled the entire exhausting, law-keeping, sacrifice-offering system that many of them certainly practice rigorously from their youth. How do I know this? Because back in Leviticus 11, and you don't have to turn there, back in Leviticus 11, verse 44, in the midst of laying down the law, God offers this word as the point of it all. He says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You know what Greek word is used here for consecrate and be holy? You guessed it, hagiazo. Hagiazo yourselves and be hagiazo. This means behind all the elaborate sacrificial system with its rituals and rigor, behind the thousand plus years of bloodshed, behind all the strict law keeping, behind all that was the aim to be holy as God is holy, to be hagiazo. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying, all you've been trying and failing to do over the last thousand plus years, Jesus just did on your behalf. All you've been trying to achieve, he has achieved for you. Christ is the perfect sin offering. He, like the sacrifices before him, traded places with the sinner. He, like the sacrifices before him, was brought outside the gate, away from the people, forsaken by God, and destroyed so we didn't have to be. But unlike all those sacrifices before, it actually was effective and fully satisfying. It was no longer the shadow, but the substance. All those other times, the sinner would inevitably come trudging back after another failure again and again and again, more bloodshed, more death, more dirtiness. But this time, the sinner need not return. This time, the substitution would not be for the insufficient and momentary ritual purity granted through the blood of an animal, but for the perfect holiness of God himself through the unblemished, all-covering, all-satisfying blood of Jesus. Those in Christ are not just uh, ritually pure, but actually pure, and will stay that way. Why did Jesus go outside the gate? To get back what we lost in the garden, to win life from a place of death, to do what the law could not do, to do what the blood of bulls could not do, to do what we can never do, to secure that uh, elusive, complete, incorruptible holiness for his people and to do it in such a place and in such a way that should make our jaws drop. Believer, you're not just saved, you're clean. You're not just justified, you're sanctified. And we're about to talk a little bit more about what it looks like to live more like Christ, and that's something we should all desire to do. But first, let's not miss this. The daunting call of Leviticus is to consecrate yourselves. The freeing declaration of Hebrews is Christ has consecrated you. Past tense, already done. He has made you his people. He has made you holy as he is holy. He has made you hagiazo. How easy it would be for these early Jewish believers who had given so much of their life to trying to make themselves holy to revert back to what was practiced for so long. Now I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, I doubt anyone in here is struggling with going back to animal sacrifice. And if that's you, please see David. Uh, but 
how easy it would be for us to do the very same thing in our very own way. Uh, To try to perfect by works what was freely given by grace. God, I know I had a bad week this week, but next week I'm going to clean up my act and I'm going to make up for it. No, that is not how a Christian talks. A Christian says, God, because you have made me clean, I want to be more like you. Because, not so that. A Christian says, along with Paul in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Amen? He's done it. He's done it. And yet there is something for us to do here, and that is to go to Jesus, which Matt is going to expound upon further for us. Come on, brother. Man, I feel like we owe y'all an intermission with us splitting this thing into two parts, um, but we don't have time for that this morning. And we'll pick up in verse 13 in our chapter. The Word of God says, Therefore... Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The back half of our passage starts with the word, therefore, And any time we come across this word in scripture, we need to pay attention because the author is trying to grab us um, and to get us to pay attention to what we're supposed to do now in light of all that we have just heard. And Seth just told us all about how Jesus Christ himself did what the sacrifice used to do, how he was the fulfillment of the sacrificial system and what he accomplished by suffering outside the gate. And now, therefore... In light of all that Christ has done on our behalf, we are called to go and join Jesus outside the camp and to bear reproach like he did. And what does it mean for us to join Jesus outside the camp and to bear reproach like he did? In both of these things, we are called to imitate what Christ has already done. And I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this to y'all, but I'm what you might call a Brad Pitt fanboy. I have probably seen one too many movies of his, um, one of those being the movie Troy. And Brad Pitt plays this mighty Greek warrior named Achilles. And throughout the film, you see this tension between Achilles and the king of his land. And in one scene, Achilles is called in to fight. And as he walks by the king, he says to him, imagine a king who fights his own battles. Wouldn't that be a sight? And one of the most awe-inspiring truths of our faith is that our king did, in fact, fight his own battles. And he fought the battle for you and for me, and he continues to fight for his people. Christ fought for his people and bore reproach by denying himself and his heavenly rights by coming to earth as our servant king. For our sake, the creator of the world was born in a lowly manner. He faced rejection from his own creation He was unjustly sentenced, brutally beaten, and ultimately murdered on a cross outside the gate. We see the reproach that Christ bore for us in our passage and throughout the grand narrative of Scripture. And the author of Hebrews tells us that as we take hold of this wonderful truth 
that we should now therefore be compelled to go and join our king. Which brings us to the second point in our message that we go with Jesus. We go with him outside the camp. And in order for us to do this, um, we must first deny ourselves like Jesus did. We must leave our own comfort and go to the places that Christ would have us. And I think this leaves us with two choices, church. We can either choose an obedience to follow Christ outside the camp, or we can choose to continue doing life in the camp. Life in the camp is where we stay where we are comfortable. We surround ourselves with like-minded people. We stay where we feel safe and we don't have to fear being ridiculed. But life outside the camp, life in the places that Jesus went and where he beckons us to join him is in those places that are unknown to us. It's where we not only rub shoulders with, but we actually pursue and love people who are not similar to us and where we actually position ourselves to potentially be persecuted for our faith. It is as we go outside the camp that we begin to bear reproach like our Savior bore. And I do believe that there is a unique portion of reproach that God has ordained for each of us believers, but there is one common form that we will all face, and that is, like Jesus, we will be unknown by this world. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples as he is preparing them for his departure that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. As we encounter the ways of this world, us believers will cause friction. Certainly there are aspects of our faith that the world will look to and will admire and will appreciate, such as our generosity, our humility, the way in which we treat any and all people with dignity and respect. But just as the world hated Jesus, we are told that it will hate us as his followers. As we point out to the world its sin, as we tell the world that the one absolute and ultimate truth is God, And as we proclaim that the only answer to mankind's problems is Jesus himself, we will be despised. Jesus tells us that we should stand out as something altogether different rather than blending into the culture at hand. But in that, as we cause this friction with the world, I believe that as the church we are called to be like sandpaper, slowly but surely refining our spheres of influence and not allowing this Uh, opposition to push us away, but rather allowing it to, to pull us closer, knowing that we possess the one thing that can take these rough surfaces and fashion them into their proper function. And as we experience this friction and as we are despised for following our Savior, you know, we are reminded of the truth that this world is not our home. In verse 14, we were told that we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. And as the late Tim Keller once said, we are alien residents sojourning through this earth. We're here for a season and time, but we know that this is not our permanent residence. Now we look forward to the new city in which all things will be redeemed, in which the the curse of sin will be done away with forever, 
and the former things will have passed away. We look forward to the city where we will be welcomed in to our Heavenly Father's embrace. But this begs the question for us today, church, where are we finding our comfort? Are we finding it in this world or are we finding it in the world to come? Are we living in a manner that communicates that this is all there is to live for? Are we seeking to satisfy all of our longings and desires here? Or are we living with eyes looking to the new city? The one in which God promises to satisfy us fully as we dwell with him forevermore. If we decide to do the latter, if we decide to live with our eyes fixed on our ultimate redemption and on the promise of the city to come, then we will be empowered to truly live differently here and now. Which brings us to the last point in our service, that we are called to live through Jesus. In our closing verses, we were told that as we live through Jesus, that we will live lives of praise, doing good and sharing what we have with others. And why does the author of Hebrews uh, call this our sacrifice it is because the life of a believer should be a costly one. When we recognize the extent that Christ has been sacrificially generous towards us, the more we will begin to live that way here on earth. Our praise for what he has done for us will be a costly generosity of doing good and sharing with those here in the worldly city. As true residents of the new heavenly city that we will one day inherit, as we live through Christ, we should be the best residents of the city we currently reside in. Our passage tells us that if we live this way, empowered by Christ, with eyes looking back to all that he has done for us, and with eyes looking forward to our future inheritance, that then we will be living in a manner that is truly pleasing to God. And as I reflected on this passage, I was reminded of a book I read this past semester with some of my friends on the missionary, Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott once wrote in a journal of his, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And later, Jim and four other young men would attempt to evangelize to a tribe in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And in their attempts, all five men would be speared to death leaving behind their families. And around the world, the news of this event was called a tragic nightmare. But Jim's wife said that she believed the world was missing something. In her book, she wrote, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim's credo. Our comfort as God's people is not that we avoid suffering and death in this world, but rather our comfort is in the unchanging truth that in the new city to come, we will be saved from eternal suffering and death. And following the death of their husbands, some of these wives and families returned to this tribe and continued the evangelistic work, ultimately leading some of its members to Christ. And this, I believe, is such a beautiful picture of what it can look like to leave the camp and to bear reproach as Jesus bore, to forsake comfort and securities in this world because of complete assurance of the everlasting comfort and security in the world to come. I know you may be thinking, what does this mean for us here? What does it mean for us as residents in Columbia, South Carolina? You know, I don't think it necessarily means that we all leave this service and book a one-way flight to the Amazon. But for some of us, that may be what God is calling us to. 
But I think some questions that we each need to begin wrestling with to process whether we are living life in the camp or whether we are going outside the camp, whether we are living for this city or for the city to come, is what is your response when you encounter the ways of this world? Do you withdraw and hide or do you draw near with the truth of the gospel? Have you become preoccupied with Western affluence with accumulating things on this earth? Or are you living generously, looking to meet the needs of those in your community? Are you like Jesus in spaces that the world would not expect the believer to be? Or are you becoming a Christian recluse, avoiding the world at all costs? In our city, going outside the camp means we pursue and love and care for those in need. The homeless, those in foster care, those facing financial and health burdens, those that are discriminated against. We pursue and love those struggling with drug and alcohol abuse, with not handling business properly, um, with their sexual identity. We pursue and love the one finding their identity and work, their meaning in their family, and their worth and their possessions. And we showcase to each of these people the freedom of Christ by stepping outside the camp, going to them, and sharing with them the thing that they are most desperately searching for. In church, our great hope, if we do choose to step outside the camp, is that we know with certainty that it is there that our Jesus resides. He first went there for us. He went um, and died in that place for our sins. And now he not only empowers us to go and join him, but he himself goes with us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are in fact a king who fights for his own people. You are the one who has won the battle and you invite your people to enjoy in the spoils of your victory. We thank you that you forsook your comfort and suffered and died outside the gate that we may live. Lord, we ask that you would help our hearts to take hold of this truth, that we would daily bask in the truth of the gospel and that as we grasp this, that we would be empowered with your spirit to join you outside the gate. Amen.